as this world gets more unequal and poverty continues to grow despite people being willing to work. We need experimentation to figure out some of these answers to these questions and it's beginning to happen everywhere. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Author and former labor union leader Andy Stern thinks universal basic income is the key to solving problems plaguing America's economy. He wrote about it in his book, Raising the Floor, how a universal basic income can renew our economy and rebuild the American dream. He's the featured speaker on today's show. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. As technology takes over jobs humans used to do, an old idea is gaining traction. In the 1960s, economist Milton Friedman championed a universal basic income, or what he called a negative income tax. He believed it would help the poor. President Richard Nixon tried to pass a version of Friedman's proposal, but it failed in Congress. The idea is to give citizens money regularly, regardless of their income or whether they're employed. Some iterations have the payments replacing social safety net programs like welfare. Can such a program offer greater security for people taking low-paying jobs, giving up looking for work, or struggling to pay the bills? Andy Stern says a universal basic income is a solution to major economic disruptions. In this talk from the Aspen Ideas Festival, he tells the Institute's Elliot Gerson, today's digital disruptions are here to stay. Here's Gerson. You argue that these disruptions that we see now may in fact not be temporary and that they may be the new normal for various reasons that he'll talk about that technology and there was I think a McKinsey study that said something like 45 percent of the activities that take place in the workforce can now be automated but for all of these things uh, makes a very persuasive argument that times really are different now and unlike people who just talk about that and analyze it, he has, which is appropriate at the Ideas Festival, a big idea. And an idea that uh, he strongly believes uh, could make a difference, which is the idea of a universal basic income. And we'll talk a little bit about the origins of this idea. It's not a new idea. It goes back a long way. It's not even necessarily a democratic or a liberal idea. It has incredibly strong credentials with conservative thinkers and libertarians as well. So let me start by simply saying, you know, uh, the, you know, the president's economic advisors boast of low unemployment. We have lower deficits, lower interest rates. Uh, lower costs of energy. The presidential candidates may talk a little bit about the minimum wage, but no one really seems to be as pessimistic about the future of jobs as, as you are. Why are you? So what I always say is if you really wanted to correctly name the country now, you would call it the United States of Anxiety. <laughs> because as David Brooks wrote, which I think is, was very ahead of the Brexit vote, but if you think about Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, what is the fuel for a lot of their campaigns is pain. That working people are in pain. And when 47% of people in America say that they wouldn't have $400 for an unexpected expense, when 58% that the American dream's not alive, 
At the last session, we learned that 71% of the people think the American economy is rigged uh, against them. I think people are crying out. And I think we sometimes don't understand, as Elliot said, this is not a temporary problem. And, and let me explain why. The great thing about the 20th century economy was when economic growth happened, GDP growth and productivity growth, wages grew and jobs grew. So when a politician said, oh, the economy's growing, everybody said fabulous because they understood, well, that means jobs are growing and wages are growing. And then about 1990, when everybody said the economy's growing, a number of us were saying, yeah, except for wages for workers aren't growing. And everybody would say, this is cyclical. It'll come around. And now 20 years later, we realize we've had a structural change. You can have GDP growth and productivity growth without wage growth. What we haven't admitted yet, and I will say will be proven true, is you can have GDP growth and productivity growth without job growth. And that's what we've not yet accepted. And that's before we even talk about uh, technology. But I think we need to understand that people are hurting. What I like, what I open my book by saying, which I don't want to get into the education issue right now, but I don't believe it is the answer to the structural problem we face, is that people up to now have thought it was their fault. I should have sent my kid to a better school. I should have found him a better job. He should have had a better friend. My friend should have helped him out and given him a job. Or he should have majored in a STEM field. I should have had a STEM field. And I think what people now understand, something way bigger then what I do as a person is going on, and they're mad, because they think they got ripped off from the American dream. Well, you talk about the American dream. You did something remarkable. You were really at the pinnacle, as still as a young man, in the labor movement. And you had said that, you know, that, that I think, the, I, I've got the quote, unions are the best anti-poverty program America ever created. <laughs> Yet you left the movement in 2010. And was it related to your sense that animates this book, that that's no longer going to be enough to bring people to the middle class, just that kind of union activity? Yeah, I think there's a whole series of what I call mitigating policies, all of which help. Unions help now. $15 an hour helps now. Education helps now. Less regulation would probably help somewhat now. But what I realize is that none of them are enough. And for the American labor movement, when you represent one in 16 workers in the American economy, and the only two sectors of the economy the union movement controls, so to speak, or where they take wages out of competition, is entertainment and professional sports, which is not really the heart of the economy right now. And so that if your, your life mission as mine was to try to change people's lives on a large scale, you know, I, by 2010 I left because I didn't feel the union movement was the right way, and more importantly, I couldn't figure out what was going on in this economy in terms of what people should really do and really think about in the long run. We've heard this song before, you know, technology threatening the end of jobs. And we've heard this many, many times historically, and it hasn't happened. So why, why aren't you just a 21st century Luddite? <laughs> Or, you know, or Chicken Little. What? That's one of the nicest things people have ever called me in my life. So. Uh, why, why do you think this is really different? So I am not an economist. I, I could tell you the sturdy little secret of this book is the Columbia Business School Press wouldn't publish it because I'm not an economist and I have no right making some outrageous claims, so let me make them now. Uh, <laughs> McKinsey says 45% of all the tasks in America can be eliminated now, 13% more when artificial intelligence is commercially deployed. 
Oxford University says 47% of all the jobs will be eliminated in America. Boston Consulting Group, 25% in Europe. Deloitte, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum calls this the fourth economic revolution, talks about millions of jobs being destroyed. Bill Gross, Larry Summers, and after the, after the session, Bob Rubin, who just spent two days in Silicon Valley. So I don't know, but if my meteorologists, experts, were telling me there was a tsunami coming, you know, I wouldn't say, let me just kind of look up there. Maybe the wind's going to change. I'd prepare, and I think it is irresponsible for a country to have all of these experts who provide advice to companies and countries saying a massive disruption in the job market has a huge probability to just say, let's debate to see whether it's going to happen or not. Because the last thing I, the one thing I do know <laughs> is when people are wrong, who are very successful, the people that pay the price are working people in this country. We saw it in the financial crisis, we're seeing it now, and I don't think it's right to, to, to have the, our mistakes be foisted upon people who are doing everything we ask them to do. But, but there are some people like Robert Gordon and others who, who, who say that the, this notion you have of the future of few jobs just has no empirical basis. Do, do you have evidence to refute those who say they don't? So here's what, what I'd say. I think you could have a very interesting debate, if that's what you like to do, and we're at Aspen, so we mm -hmm. should like to do that, you know, about what, how much productivity is factored into today's problems versus globalization and many other legitimate issues. But it's a difference between thinking about Uber right now. So a lot of people are appropriately focused on, well, Uber you know, has this independent contractor status. Mark Warner thoughtfully talks about how could we build a portable benefits or a new form of benefits around what is now a self-managed economy more than an employer-managed economy. That's really good stuff right now. Tell me what we're going to do when Uber has driverless cars. What's that debate going to be about? Portable benefits? So I just think we can all decide right now what's going on. And as I said, there's lots of really thoughtful policies in Spandy, ITC, and different kinds of jobs. I'm for all of them. But this is the one fact someone has to explain to me what we're going to do. The largest job in 29 states in the United States is driving a truck. 29 states, 3.5 million truck drivers in America, 6.8 million people who write insurance, who repair cars, who run rest stops, gas stations, give speeding tickets. Driverless trucks are on the road right now in mining sites. They're not allowed regulatorily to come onto the highways yet. I don't know if anybody saw Europe, but they had a one truck driver drive a caravan of trucks, four trucks behind the first truck, all done by technology. No drive, all drivers, they weren't hooked together, it was all done. They drove from one end of Europe to the other end of Europe. So maybe we won't get rid of all the truck drivers, we'll have four-fifths less of truck drivers. We're talking about three, four, five million people in a very short time span on top of the Uber drivers, on top of what's happening in healthcare and retail and everything else. I, I don't think this is a situation where if we were on a, in a company, our risk managers would say, you know, we better have a plan in case this happens because we could find ourselves in a very desperate kind of situation. Well, it's certainly not that economists aren't writing about this. I mean, last year the rage was Tomas uh, Piketty uh, and although I have to say that I much admired your honesty <laughs> in this book because he, he refers, he refers uh, to Piketty and, and admits that he really only read 60 pages of it. But, but what I also know is that in case you wonder about how, what Amazon knows about your Kindle reading, 
two-thirds of the people didn't get past page 100 of the Piketty book <laughs> for an interesting statistic. But I mean, there's support. I mean, he's talking about return of sort of a patriarchal capitalism, and, and people are going to, it's going to be inherited wealth as opposed to wealth uh, uh, from, from work. But let me get back to the question I was asking just a minute ago. What, what's, what's wrong with people thinking that technology is going to be replacing all these jobs, but technology itself is increasingly important. Why not expect that we can't, that our children can find good paying jobs if they do focus on STEM education, learn how to code? Isn't that part of the answer? Uh, as I say in the book, you can go through them one by one. The Rand Corporation did a study on STEM. You know, and but the problem with STEM is AI, artificial intelligence, is beginning to do many of the functions that once were done by engineers. There are, it's learning machines now, not just programming machines. So I think there are lots of things that are going to work well on the short run. There's not a, I just spent two days in Silicon Valley with some of the smartest people who are there. None of them believe, for instance, that coding other than the LeBron James coders or the Stephen Curry coders, as there are in law firms, only the top lawyers, but lawyers anymore who are going to simply do, do uh, you know, evidence searching or doing you know, basic writings or researching a brief, that's all going to be replaced by technology. So I think there's plenty of jobs for coders and STEM people, but they're going to only be limited and at a high level, and technology is not going to spare them any more than anesthesiologists. We could talk about what IBM Watson is going to do to healthcare, but there's nothing being spared right now. In the industrial agricultural revolution, we had one industry, agriculture, and we were changing it. Then we had the industrial revolution with some agriculture, and we were changing it. And technology changed those two industries. Tell me an industry right now that's not being affected by technology. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's show features Andy Stern, an advocate for universal basic income. Stern is a senior fellow at Columbia University, and for more than a decade, he led the Service Employees International Union. Stern also served on President Obama's Simpson-Bowles Commission. He's speaking with Elliot Gerson, an executive vice president at the Aspen Institute. Their discussion was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June 2016. Here's more of their conversation. Let, let's accept the, the, the diagnosis here. Let's talk about your big idea and the prescription, universal basic income. Just tell us, tell us what that is. So I'd love to pretend I thought this idea up. And I find it very interesting, because two years ago, if you asked me what a universal basic income was, I would have no idea. But now I'm an expert, so I'll explain to you <laughs> what it is. So this is an idea that dates back to Thomas Paine. When the late 1700s, late, Thomas Paine said that since we were going to take all the land that the British once owned and privatize it, we should give every person 15 pounds sterling to compensate them for the, the common good that was being turned over. And then philosophers like Burton Russell and conservatives like Frederick Hayek you know, promoted the ideas John Maynard Keene because we were to get to a point in history, which we've obviously didn't get to then, of abundance rather than scarcity, and we had to figure out a way to distribute success differently. The interesting thing is this idea hit its prime in the United States under Richard Nixon. 
So Milton Friedman, his major economic advisor, conducted experiments, which unfortunately all the data has never been collected in six cities in the United States where they gave people cash. And they said, what will happen if we give people cash instead of food stamps and unemployment and all the other categorical programs, what would happen? They loved the results. They saw lots of positive developments. And Richard Nixon proposed a basic income program of $10,000 of current money. Uh, it passed the Republican House of Representatives twice and died in the US Senate because the Democrats didn't think it was enough money. And that's why we have today's current welfare system. Really, it was money for no work. For no work. It was a guaranteed income, actually. It, sort of, it was sort of a top-up in some ways. But it guaranteed everybody a floor. And what was interesting is that Martin Luther King, in the very last book he wrote before his assassination, From Chaos to Community, wrote a scathing condemnation of the kind of welfare program we have today. He said, we didn't ask people to give us government programs. We asked people to end poverty. And if you want to end poverty, give people money. Is this how, how complicated is that? And when you look at how much money we've spent, and as someone said today, 44 million people are still in poverty, including 14 million children. Whatever we're doing isn't working very well. And you can guarantee to end poverty by universal basic income if you set the numbers at a level that works and you can find a way to afford it. And, and presumably, one of the reasons that the idea appeals to conservatives and libertarians is that you could eliminate some of those other programs and actually reduce the role of government. Right. Is that Well, right? I guess we're in the Coke building, which was, was the funders of Cato. And just to show you how right. widely accepted an idea is that Charles Murray, who is someone right. who usually doesn't agree with me and probably still doesn't completely, obviously, and myself are going to hold a forum at Cato because we both actually have the same general idea that this is a better way forward than many of the other programs we're doing. There's a whole group of uh, you know, other conservative and libertarians who believe, for the reason that they would say, the one thing the government does well, as Michael Tanner from Cato says in my book, is they give people checks. This is the most efficient check writing. If you look at Social Security, it's done much cheaper than the private industry. So let's have the government do well. What they do is write checks. And let's get rid of all the other 126 cash transfer programs. And that's how many there are in one form or another in the federal government and give people money. Now, we'll fight about what we get rid of and what we keep, and that's all life. But we both have a general agreement that what's been going on doesn't work. There's a better way to do this, and some of it are, can be funded by getting rid of many of the programs that we currently have, like EITC and unemployment, which you know sends chills up the spines of many of my friends. Let's just get our arms mm -hmm. around this notion. It's, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's like that Dire Straits song, Money for Nothing. Right. Um, so how, how does that square just culturally, given the strength of Calvinism and the Protestant ethic in this country? So I'd say two things. First, let me explain my, what my proposal is, because it's very simple. There are many derivations of it. So my proposal is the poverty rate in the United States, according to the federal government, I don't believe it's a really good number in the terms of how accurate it is, but it is the number that every federal program is and every state subsidy is based on is $11,900 a year for an individual. So I give everybody $1,000 a month, $12,000. That ends of poverty as it's officially, and $24,000 for a family, which a family of four, that's the official poverty rate as well. So that's the plan. 18 to 64, you top up people on Social Security who don't do that. You know, there's obviously lots of things about should people have national service, should we do something for children, should you reduce your carbon footprint, but it is not about work. Okay. 
So then the second question is the values question. And I think this is not just about universal basic income. Because people who have crappy jobs in America don't look at work like I do. I loved my job. I loved going to work. It was my social milieu. It was my meaning in life. It is not for my son, right? He doesn't have any loyalty to his employer. A friend of mine, Carl Camden, the head of Kelly Services, right in the book, his son thinks a job is a, being a wage slave to someone else. He wants flexibility and mobility. If he can't have a good job, he wants to just have a good life outside of work, which is why some of our kids are living in our home or they're receiving what I call, which is, is a really interesting thing for many of you who do this, you know, is parental basic income. You know? Because I don't see this as a substitute for work. I see it as a supplement to work. I mean, people will patch together things for a long time, but it's not necessarily enough. So my son, when he goes on vacation, I pay. If he has a huge problem that he can't afford, I help him, right? And it stabilizes his life entirely. And the members who I represented in my union, home care, child care, janitors, security officers, the same situation comes up, they are desperate. They're at their credit card, they're at their friends, they are anxious, they're worried about missing a paycheck. It is not a life anyone would want to lead. And just by that parental basic income, you know, I've stabilized my children's life, and so many people I know have stabilized their family's life. So I think the work question becomes a millennial question and younger, not a question for old men like me, because work was too important in my life. But I don't believe, as this situation gets worse and worse and worse, that people are finding their identity and their meaning. And I think some philosophers and Aspen from its founding kind of moments need to figure out what is the purpose of life? What was Maslow's need hierarchy? It didn't say the highest need was working. It was said it was self-actualization, which can partially come from work, but it doesn't have well, to. Well, I mean, if you ask that question, actually, in the seminars we do, we go back to Aristotle, mm -hmm. and Aristotle would probably agree with this. I mean, for Aristotle... <laughs> Finally, somebody would agree with me. <laughs> for, Aristotle, for Aristotle, the purpose of work was really to provide leisure, was to provide opportunity to enjoy and do other things, and there, it wasn't that kind of intrinsic value, self-defining mm -hmm. value. But, you know, this all sounds awfully utopian. <laughs> In a minute, I'm going to get to how we're going to, sure. we would pay for this. Right. Um, but politically, how does something like this happen? And, and actually, for a second, to, to, to talk, a bit, talk to us a little bit about Alaska. Sure. And is that a little example of what you're talking about? So Alaska, what, what Elliot's talking about, has something called the Alaska Permanent Fund, a dividend. So every Alaskan citizen every year gets a dividend for, since 1976 based on the oil revenues from the North Shore oil discovery. And interestingly, rather than giving it to the government, all the revenues, they gave it to the people. And it's endured since 1976, and Sarah Palin and the most liberal person in Alaska wouldn't try to take it away from anybody. And unfortunately, not a lot of study has been done, but it, you know, mechanically it's very easy. There's certain anecdotal evidence about kids who turn 18 and can't, couldn't otherwise afford their fees and other things that a Pell Grant won't pay for, you know, and now have a much easier time going to community college or finding their way. But you know, there is a, an example going on. And I should say, you know, this may be a boomlet, you know, but Finland is experimenting now. Originally, they could do the whole country. They're starting with 8,000 people. Utrecht is redoing their welfare system uh, to do that. Give Directly is doing a program in third world countries. Ban Ki-moon now says that every time someone brings a development grant to him, he says, 
besides the program, why don't we just give people the money? Uh, and Justin Trudeau, I think, will be the, the, the game changer for the US because Justin Trudeau's platform of the Liberal Party calls for experimentation and universal basic income. His Minister of Human Services at the federal level wrote a book in 1980 before it was even I would have certainly ever known anything, and most people. And now they're talking about doing experiments in two, uh, two provinces in, in Canada to try to see if this works. And uh, the shadow governor, governor of, of the Labor Party, as it was, who knows what it will be, you know, was, was beginning to investigate it. So there's kind of an idea as this world you know, gets more unequal and poverty continues to grow despite people being willing to work and that we need experimentation to figure out some of these answers to these questions and it's beginning to happen everywhere. And there was a Swiss election, a referendum on this recently too. But Swiss election 77 against 23-4, that's the big headline. The small headline is 70% of Swiss voters, yes and no, said they expect it to happen in 25 years. Switzerland, the average median, the median income is $72,000 a year. They were proposing $30,000 a year, and they had no way to pay for it. And there didn't seem to be a crisis that people felt, we better deal with this right now because we're going to have Brexit or something bad happen to us. You make some very interesting claims in the book. One is that, that UBI would actually make markets work better. H how? <laughs> well, one is that it makes the labor market work better because people can walk away from jobs they don't want. I mean, people all talk about opportunity, but we all know people get trapped. You got used to get trapped by the healthcare system because you couldn't leave your job without losing healthcare. But for a lot of poor and working class people, you can't leave your job to go to school, or you can't leave your job for a better job or a training position because you can't pay bills. So UBI would solve that problem. The dirty little secret of Silicon Valley is all the kids in the garages making all these inventions. They got friends and family money before they get friends and family angel investors. Because you can't live in a garage for two years in Silicon Valley and not have somebody support you. No poor person's living in Silicon Valley. And all the people will tell you that. I mean, all the, the, the tech people will tell you, of course, people will be more entrepreneurial when they can take risks. So a universal basic income provides risk. And then Judith Shulovitz wrote a huge article in the New York Times about maybe we could start compensating women and, and others who've been caregivers their whole life for the work they're doing and not just assuming they're supposed to do it for free but, and not get Social Security or everything at the end of their career. Let's just build that in. So I think there's lots of ways and going back to school for people mid-career would be a lot easier. I just think you know, we are providing shock absorbers, not a, a life where you put your feet up at $12,000 a year and say, I'm done with life. You know, bring it on, baby. I'm just going to have a great time, but where you can make some different choices. And, and the most interesting in the book discussion is Albert Wenger, who's a, a, an investor, libertarian investor, who says, think about Detroit. The housing stock is a dollar. You can get a house for a dollar. Why don't people go from all over the country and do that? Well, people who don't have money can't afford to get there. They can't afford to build the building supplies while they're there. They can't afford to eat while they're there without income, but they have all this sweat equity. But what happens if four kids got together with $12,000 each? They may get in the car and go to Detroit and fix a house and build a business, which they never could have done before. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, author and former labor union leader Andy Stern and Elliot Gerson of the Aspen Institute.
check out the Aspen Institute's newest podcast, The Bridge. After seeing women mobilize across the globe following the inauguration of President Trump, one important question arises. What does a global women's movement look like? Hear from two women from Botswana and South Africa who are active in the fight for gender equality. Find the latest episode by searching The Bridge from the Aspen Institute on iTunes. Now back to the show. Here's Elliot Gerson. So I assume you're not worried people would, you know, be lazy or slothful. Well, the good news is there's plenty of lazy and slothful people right now, rich and poor. Um, and plenty of people drink, rich and poor, which is another criticism. Everybody will start drinking. And there's a good news is they've done, the, they've done all the studies to date, and they've not been su sufficient enough, have not shown, shown much more entrepreneurial activity than idleness. But I think that's why you do experiments, you know, because we need to learn. Because if that is the result, you know, we're going to get more drugs and alcohol, you know, we should think about what we're going to do here. I don't think that's the result. But I go out to, to, to lunch with a lot of very wealthy people who are drunk at 12 o'clock, and everybody thinks that that's okay, too. I hate to spoil all this fun. Uh, <laughs> Who's but, paying for the party? Well, first tell me, how much is this party going to cost? The party costs, and this is another place we need to do good research. You know, I, I love Eduardo Porter, and his, his, his commitment to ending poverty is pretty good, but his math needs a little bit of work. Because uh, he said it's cost 300, I think 300, no, three, $3 trillion, I think is the number yeah, he picked. It's a T. Yeah. It was a T. It was a $3 trillion. <laughs> So it probably costs $1.75 trillion. That's the starting place. Then you have to subtract out all the welfare programs you're going to cash out. If you, it was up to the conservatives, they would say that's about $1.2 trillion because they get rid of Social Security and Medicare. I don't. Um, but it's probably six to $700 billion of government programs just in human services. We can all talk about military and other things. And I think the, so then what else do you do to fill the hole? So I have a whole list of ideas, none of which is taxing income because there's not enough money taxing income and we should stop taxing income. Thomas Piketty at least was right with that. The money's in assets, not in income. So if you want to do a tax, you know, do an income. In fact, if you tax, I think the number is, it's in my book, if you tax only the assets over a billion dollars, I think it's a half of 1%, you get like $500 billion of, of potential asset income, just to understand how much assets are around in the world and how misallocated they are. But my basic best ones are, there's $1.3 trillion in tax expenditures, which is just spending welfare money through the tax code rather than spending it through the budgetary process. And there are a lot of things that people like, like mortgage deductions and sheltering other kinds of income. But they are benefits that are su substantially used by higher income itemizing tax deductions. So I'm not saying take all of them. I'm just saying there's probably three or $400 billion there. We don't remember, but the country had a financial transaction tax for 50 years until 1964 when we decided for whatever good or bad reason, I'm not sure, but we now know in Europe and other places there are Tobin taxes and other kinds of, that's about three or $400 billion. And that's just, you know, catches the institutional investors and the high speed traders and just makes them pay, I think it's like a penny a transaction or it's something, you just have to decide, is it worth it? I think it's worth it. We're the only major industrialized country in the world that doesn't have a VAT tax. 
lot of people say, let's do it with a carbon tax. What better way to get people to be willing to tax carbon than knowing they're getting the money back rather than the government's getting the money back? So I just list a whole sets of things. And you know, the other day, and just to show you how creative people are once you start talking about it. So apparently, which I didn't know, we're about to mine space because there's all kinds of resources. So people said, you know, let's have a huge tax on mining resources in space and dedicate it to, and I'm like, I'm up for anything. But I do think what we've learned in the country is when we need to find money for a good reason, we find money. You know, the stimulus, the banking crisis, the civil rights movement was not because people woke up one day and said, you know, I really want to give people civil rights and raise people up. It's because people were burning down cities, you know, and people were scared of instability in the country. And I think people are beginning, at least many people I know who have substantial resources, are willing to pay for a certain amount of stability in the market, stability in their homes, stability for their family, you know, as long as it's not, you know, completely, you know, taking huge sums of money out of their life that we understand we live in a democracy, people are hurting, and if you want to sort of risk manage, you would spend a little bit of money right now to get the thing much more stable and see how it all plays out and not have the ideas of a Donald Trump or whomever else in Brexit that you worry about happening. Yeah, I, I actually happen to believe that it is inevitable, uh, and I think it's very exciting that it is something that has such a strong pedigree on both the right yeah. and the left, and you're now seeing more and more people in the world talking about it. On the other hand, I can't imagine this moving as fast as, say, gay marriage. And looking at contemporary politics, I, it just doesn't seem to me that it, it's going to catch on any time soon. I mean, do you? Do you? Well, I bet you would have said the same thing about Donald Trump. <laughs> you win that. Bet. You win that I think bet. we don't see what I always believe, and I was saying this earlier to someone. Anybody who thinks there's a logical, thoughtful way to make social change in this country, you know, have a great time, come to Aspen and talk about it, because it doesn't work that way anymore. You know, the way it works is there are moments, and people who are prepared for moments take advantage of moments. It's Rahm Emanuel's never let a good op you know, crisis, a good crisis go to, to go to you waste. Know, and I think, you know. In terms of marriage equality, people worked really, really hard and thought they were losing until they won, right? And I think lots of things are that way. And what you need to do is just be ready. So, you know, I have my idea. I'm not necessarily believing that universal basic income is the only good idea, or there isn't a better idea. In fact, I say this is universal basic income in, in my book, as Winston Churchill said about democracy, it's a terrible idea until you try everything else. So I keep saying, tell, tell me what else. Tell me about guaranteed jobs. Tell me how much it would cost. Tell me how you'd organize it. I'm all for it. But the one thing I'm not for is pretending there's not a problem coming when people I have an enormous amount of respect for and usually don't agree with in terms of you know, how they make recommendations. But their analysis is usually pretty spot on. And there's, they're all warning of the same thing going forward, a tsunami. But, but does that mean you are against the various things that you call mitigating policies like improving public education, investing in infrastructure, raising the minimum wage, simplifying the earned income tax credit, shortening the work week. Do you, I'm I for mean, all those things now, for sure. And I want someone to show me how those things would work when all the truck drivers and the Uber drivers go away. Right? Is it scalable? So think, we've all seen in education very good ideas in a charter school or in a couple charter schools that never get scaled, 
right? Because they have unique characteristics. And we also saw in the stimulus, we aren't really good at doing infrastructure quickly and on scale. So could someone make a plan of how, what this would look like? So I think this is the debate. What is it in a country where we're going to have a massive disruption to the job market? Larry Summers says 25% of middle-aged men will be out of work at any particular moment in the, in the next generation. That's 25% of all middle-aged men are going to be out of work. There are more people now on disability in America, which is the current version of universal basic income. If you can't find a job and you're a middle-aged, usually white man in, in, in a job market that used to be in manufacturing, you go apply for Social Security disability. Because all they can do is say no. We now have more people on disability than in working in manufacturing. It's gone up 6% in the last five years because people don't have any other way to get income, so they go down to the office and apply and find a doctor to say, I can't work. It's, it's not irrational behavior. It's just why we don't see, why the labor participation numbers go down and why lots of other things mask your original question of why things are. And so, you know, I, I do think as a country, we owe it to ourselves and to the kids we kind of left behind of my babe boomer generation where we didn't leave the country better off than we found it to find a way to provide some stability, provide some time and find a way forward in the future. Andy Stern wrote the book Raising the Floor, How a Universal Basic Income Can Renew Our Economy and Rebuild the American Dream. He's speaking with Elliot Gerson, an Executive Vice President at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Next, Gerson throws it to the audience. Here's the first question from the crowd. Thank you very much. Why universal? Why make the same mistake that was made with Social Security? And why not start correctly by a means test going on so as to leverage the ability to really provide the support to where it's needed? What are the main arguments against the program that I'm sure there's lots yeah. of people who've studied this? Right. So w one is there's a British social scientist who said any policy only for the poor is poor policy. So if you look at Social Security and you look at Alaska and other universal benefits that exist in countries all throughout Europe, they are much more enduring because we don't separate the worthy poor you know, from the poor from the wealthy. And so I think the tax system is how you solve that problem, not, not having universality. So it, it's not as if we don't have a tax system. It's not as if we can't find ways to change tax expenditures, which have similar effects of reclaiming money. But I think the last thing we want to do is have a, a poor person's policy because as we've seen, we're now up to drug testing people who are unemployed to see if they're worthy. And that is the road I fear that we go down when we have another policy for the poor. I mean, the arguments against it are, you know, one, we don't need it. Two is if you do, like Bob Greenstein, who I have an enormous amount of respect for, runs the Center for Budget, 
is scared that once you open up this discussion, you lose what you have instead of going forward. I've just spent two days in Silicon Valley. The last thing they worry about is maintaining the status quo. They want to win. You know, they have a winning idea, not a how do I maintain this. They're not the taxi industry, you know, trying to keep the status quo. So, you know, people will say it's going to disrupt what we have. We're going to lose what we have. And I think many, you know, people would say, and I'm willing to look at it. Tell me how you're going to do a shorter work week in a global economy. I'm fine. Show me how you're going to do guaranteed jobs. I, my joke about guaranteed jobs is what people have in their mind, most people, about guaranteed jobs is infrastructure, which is true, which is where, supposedly where the guys are going to go work, and then child care and elder care where the women usually of color are going to go work. And I keep saying, no, this is about your college-educated kid not having a job, and if he will change my feeding tube and clean my house, I'm for guaranteed jobs. <laughs> I think you've nailed the problem, but if you, if you carry it out that we're going to have no truck drivers, no Ubers, no coding, no whatever, the only way that sits is if you assume that in the next 25 years you'll only need 10% of the population to really work, which I quite doubt that. My one-year-old daughter, I'm sorry, my one-year-old granddaughter <laughs> probably has had 70% of the job she could do not invented yet. So with that said, I think we're going to have a workforce. I don't think you can give yourself out of a sociological situation, just like business people can't save themselves out of bad business. So we have this problem. How do we retrain, re-educate? Because I think you can put a safety net, but at some point, it's, it's a finite response you know, to a dynamic problem. So uh, you know, I'd say two things. One is the wonderful thing about developing public policy, is you, which the Congress doesn't get yet. You can change it. You don't have to deploy it if you don't need it. You can re, like Obamacare has a lot of wrong things. They, you could fix it if you really wanted to do that, which some people do and some people don't. So my basic belief is you want to build a policy model that can solve certain problems. And you want to experiment in small scales to make sure you learn all the potential unintended consequences, which there will be many. You know, and then you want to have it ready. To, you know, maybe you only need to put out $2,000 a year. Maybe you can do a shorter work week. So we should have a, a, a sort of a smorgasbord of tools and respond to real life situations. Because you and I could argue forever what's the job market going to look like in 20 years and what new jobs are going to be created. Let's just admit, let's be ready no matter which one of us happens to be right, and we can bet on the side, and one of us makes some money. But we don't have, one, to, one we last, don't have to make all those decisions. One last comment. Sure. You, you, it isn't the 44 million on poverty or under that I'm concerned with. It's the 100 million that are making $47,000, dollars right. a year that are locked out intellectually and educationally. That's where the sweet spot is. And it's a tough conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Eric Friedlander from the state of Kentucky and worked for uh, the Health and, Service, Health and Family Services Cabinet, and I have one anecdote for you. We implemented the Affordable Care Act in Kentucky and I think did a really good job up until like November. Um, but I went and uh, was going out and doing a lot of things with the public and one woman came up to me and she said, okay, does this mean I can quit my job? And I thought, what on earth? I didn't even understand what she was saying. But she said, I, I have my job because I need my health care. Right. And this means I get to quit my job. Mm -hmm. So it was a very uh, eye-opening moment for me. Now I, now I run the community action agency in Louisville. So uh, seeing the folks that we are serving, I absolutely believe you are correct. 
we try to throw a variety of services at folks and it doesn't actually meet them where they are. And I think the only thing that I can think of that I could see as a potential problem has to do with financial education. Sure. Because I think if a lot of money goes out, there will be predators, as there have been sure. in the housing crisis. And I think that will be a piece that we'll need to consider if we roll this out, which I think is actually a great idea because I've said my firm grasp of the obvious is if, you're, if you really want to work on poverty, then you need to get people more money. Okay. So I, I would just say there's one other thing that I, I guess I've become more passionate about than I might have been, which is, is who gets to make choices in life? I mean, one of the interesting things is you look at Uber and some people criticize it you know, because the way the work is structured, people aren't employees. But you talk to a lot of the Uber drivers, forget the economics of it, the fact that they have the freedom to work at different hours, not work on certain days, take their kid to the doctor, is very different than, I'll tell you, for the members of my union who used to work in retail or other places, because they missed a couple hours, their job was at stake, they were docked, it was really anxiety producing. And so, you know, one of the things is that for progressives, I would say, you know, we don't sort of appreciate that people should get to make choices in their life, and some will make really bad ones. But rich people, the most wonderful thing about having money is you can work as hard as you want, or you can take a year off. You know? And I think that's an incredible value in life, to have choice. And when you're economically hamstrung and have no ability to walk away from anything, you know, that is not a very good way to live. And so I think when you talk philosophically about democracy and freedom and all the things we're, it's not about just campaign finance reform. And it's about giving people, trusting people. I was a welfare worker. Okay, so imagine this. I'm 23 years old from a very middle-class family working in the poorest part of Philadelphia. I am making life and death economic decisions for 42-year-old women with three kids, African-American women. I look back and think, how humiliating for them. What a stupid system, right? As if I would know, you know what to tell some 43-year-old woman living in the housing projects in Philadelphia. So there's a whole demeaning nature to this poverty world that we've created for people that makes them you know, not have choices. And so one of the wonderful things about, I think about UBI is to give people who haven't had choices some real choices in life. Hi, Jane McGonigal from the Institute for the Future. First, thank you for doing this work and writing this Thank book. you for the Institute for Future. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned a lot experiments. Can you talk a little bit about what what does a good experiment on universal basic income look like? What do we, what should we be looking for? What should people who have the opportunity to do research on this or try to kickstart experiments or evangelize for that, what, what should we be designing this, or doing right now? This is where I am not a Luddite, but I'm not very creative. Someone should go to Alaska and study what's happened in the last 25 years. Like it's amazing we have that, because it's geographically isolated, so it's not been tainted by some of the other worries that the Y Combinator experimenting Oakland could have. We've had this physically separated state giving everybody $2,500. It comes once a year. Do the bars get full up for that next month? Or the people invest? There's lots we could learn from what's already got on. And then I think we need a big enough number and a long enough period of time to try to figure out what's human behavior. We can figure out the economic situation fairly easily, but the behavioral questions. Does anyone have any thoughts about how long one needs to study this for? No, that's why I failed statistics. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it's interesting to me that this parallels a move in the humanitarian community. Instead of giving people blankets or food or 
or medicines, they actually give them the cash. Right. It restores their integrity and sense of self-worth if they make their own choices as a family about what they want to spend things on. And nine times out of ten, and it has been studied, they spend the money wisely on, on things that they need. Mm-hmm. I have a really practical question. Mm-hmm. If everybody is getting $11,000 a year, who in the world will do the menial tasks that need to be done in society? Who will sweep the floors? Who will clean the toilets? Who will muck the stalls? I don't think $12,000, certainly. I, I live in New York and Washington at different times, and no one's going to stop working at $12,000 a year. It, it may drive up the cost of some of those jobs because people walk away, or it may make the jobs, no one really knows, cost less because people think I got $12,000, I don't need $15, I could do it for $10 an hour. I think those are the kinds of things we need to learn of how does the labor market respond. Some people say you can get rid of minimum wage if you do this because the labor market will be much more vital if people can do that. I don't know. I, I, so I, I don't know. The G, I mean, you mentioned the GI Bill of Rights, which was a great success after the Second World War. What about trying to, to reinstitute a kind of draft? that everybody must uh, spend two years in military training for which they would get a free college education. What's good or bad about that? There's a call issue in universal basic income about whether there should be national service attached to it, whether people are becoming so isolated from each other because of social media and geography that maybe this is a chance to sort of say, you want to be paid for the rest of your life then you need to spend two years giving to your country. I think those are all exactly the right kind of debates. I was just, I'm trying to do what I think, I hope I'm doing here is, is provoke people to think about it and not to get too complicated in the details. So my proposal's very simple, but there's a lots of ways to do it. And I, I would just say this, you know, I have a 29-year-old son and I really worry about his future. He's ready to work as many hours as he can find. He's a good kid, you know, he has a lovely wife. And life isn't as easy. You went to college when I grew up, and you did fine, or you got a union job. And one way or the other, you had a ticket or at least an opportunity to go to middle class. I find it really sad that people are doing everything they used to do, and even more, sending their kids to college, and they can't get ahead. And that's a societal problem and a structural problem. And we should not make people feel bad that they're doing what we've asked them to do, and it doesn't work. We should say, the system is broken. Let's fix the system. I have one idea, there are many more, but let's not demonize the people and tell them to go to college and everything will be okay. That's what we did to blue collar workers. We just said, oh, if you had gotten a college education, well, what are we telling the adjunct professors who have masters and doctor's degrees that are having a really hard time? They did everything right. So let's build an America where we try to build a community that takes care of everyone and lifts everyone up. Thanks. Thank you very much. Andy Stern is a former union leader, a senior fellow at Columbia University, and was a trustee at the Aspen Institute. He wrote the book, Raising the Floor. Elliot Gerson interviewed him. Gerson is an executive vice president at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was part of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our Public Programs. Thanks for joining me.